Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Bradley Cesario, author of the book New Crusade, The Royal Navy and British Navalism, 1884 to 1914. Bradley, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. And it's a pleasure to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Um... Born on a cold day in December, and I'll, I'll skip some uh, parts from there. Uh, I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Illinois, and then I got my master's and PhD at Texas A&M University in College Station, uh, the PhD in 2016. And I spent a few years working, you know, odd academic jobs, as you do. And I am currently at Angelo State University in San Angelo, Texas, where the West was one. <laughs> So what was it that led you to write a book about navalism and the debates over the Royal Navy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? Well, like all good stories, this one's a two-parter. Specifically, why I focused in on this kind of late Victorian, early Edwardian period, that came out of my master's thesis. My master's thesis was on essentially the cultural relevance of Admiral Nelson in the century since his death, so 1805 to 1905. And as I was working on that, and that had a lot more of um, literary analysis and things like that, you know, children's books on Nelson, et cetera, et cetera. I sort of came to the conclusion as I went that this centenary period, you know, right around 1905, was really interesting because they were starting to tie Nelson into this idea of the navalist impulse in Britain and this idea that the Navy is all to Britain and that we are tying modern technology in with these classical ideas of leadership and naval heroism and mythology. And and that got me interested in the time period. And so that was sort of the tangent I went upon as it became time to work on the dissertation. And as I started to, you know, do the background reading on the project and, you know, you read folks like Arthur Martyr, you read the folks who have been around in the field forever and ever and ever. And they all say, this is the age of navalism. And I said, okay, great. I understand that. That is a concept that makes sense to me. What is, what does that mean? And the further I went, the more I realized everybody just says, well, it means a big Navy. Well, okay. Yes, that's true. Is this a malleable concept? You know, does navalism mean something different to the Navy itself, to journalists, to the average British voter? You know, does it mean different things in different countries? And obviously yes, but at the time the literature wasn't really pushing that idea forward. The literature was still kind of floating around this navalism means a big Navy. And I wanted to kind of pick apart at that a little bit. So I decided to do some digging. So you produce a book and you're to be, uh, to be clear, yours is not the first book necessarily on navalism, but you have a very specific focus on directed navalism. And I was wondering if you could explain what it was that distinguishes what you're doing and what your specific focus is. Because I, I mean, as I read your book, I thought it was a really fascinating focus and one that, you know, is, is, you know, illuminates a, an aspect that 
I was thinking is so relevant today in so many ways because it, it, it speaks to a lot of what we see in terms of uh, you know defense spending and debates, public debates about public defense and, and national security. But as you explained, it was was very unique for the uh, for the times. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as I sort of, I don't know, whatever metaphor you'd like to use, peeled away at this what onion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I sort of came up with a concept that I called in the book directed navalism, which is essentially the elite version. You know, people who actually have a direct stake in making the Navy go, how are they trying to sell the Navy? You know, because this is the late 1880s into the 1890s into the Edwardian era. You know, that is a very unique period, not only in technological history, which is what a lot of this navalism stuff often centers around, but in the history of journalism, you know, in history of the press, in public opinion histories, you know, and I wanted to sort of tie those two stories together. You know, people in the Navy by the mid-1880s at the absolute latest start to say to themselves, we're not able to get what we want from the annual budget by talking to politicians. Our own bosses will not listen to us. Maybe we can sort of do an end run around this process and talk to the papers instead. And, you know, the 1880s, this era of new journalism, there's very much a mystique around the press. You know, you speak of the press in these sort of odd, hushed tones. The press can do anything. You know, I think a lot of members of the Admiralty kind of bought into that idea. And they said, well, we'll go to the press and we'll try and work with that. So directed navalism, at least as I'm defining it, it's an elite process. It is very self-selecting. You know, this was not public navalism. This was not everybody buying sailor suits and taking their kids out to see, you know, a dreadnought on holiday, things like that. This was very much a sort of behind the scenes, high level operation. This is a relationship between naval officers, naval journalists, and members of the British government who dealt with naval matters. I sort of, uh, very illiterate. Well, I pronounced that wrong. I used alliteration to call these folks in the book, you know, professionals, press and politicians. But those are the three big groups. I sort of wanted to focus on the top level behind the scenes. You know, what are sort of the smoke filled room, right? What are these decisions that are, frankly, uh, may not correspond to all the contemporary rules on how you're supposed to talk to the press? What are these decisions that are being taken? How are they being made? You know, I want it to be the very top level of folks. That was my idea. And I think it's a very valuable study because you're describing a cultural change that is so nicely captured. Uh, you have at the beginning that quote from Lord Northbrook, who was the uh, first Lord of the Admiralty in the uh, early 1880s, where he talks, where he basically says in Parliament, "If you were to give me money, I wouldn't know what more money I wouldn't know what to do with it for our navy." And by the and to uh, by the time you get to near the end of your book, you have this you know idea of you know we want aid and we won't wait and and, and how they they basically you know th- there's this idea that the navy can't have enough money for its needs and you're talking about really a whole cultural shift that as you've already acknowledged you know is really the at the essence you know it, it, navalism is a big part of it but here we're seeing how it was shaped and 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 who was behind it and how were they promoting it i was wondering if you could start us off by talking a bit about that period in the 1880s and when the admirals begin this and to whom do they reach out and and what are some of the reactions that you see on the victorian political scene at that point yeah uh one second here i'm i'm writing your questions down as you do <laughs> Um, first of all, I wanted to go back to the first part of your question for a second. Um, 
because yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the broader points that I'm making throughout the entire work is that, and this is not a point I don't think that is specific to naval history or to the Edwardian Admiralty or anything like that, but it is when politicians or members of perhaps the armed forces or other elite groups, when they try and sort of steer these giant public opinion projects, oftentimes they will find that uh, they go a direction that was not predicted. And they very much find themselves, you know, losing control of their own creation. And that is a story that I wanted to trace throughout as well. So yes, it's very much something they, the admirals in particular, have a lot of control over at the beginning, and then that control wanes, and then it eventually just falls apart. You know, directed navalism is gone by World War One. Now, the point I'm making is that it's very relevant to other types of navalism that have arisen in that intervening period, but it's not around even by World War One. It, it is very much a brief rise, brief fall. Uh, yeah, to your more specific question about what kind of initially jump-started this, there are, and this is something I talk about in the timeline section at the very beginning, there's a lot of dates in this sort of general 1870s, 1880s, 1890s era that you can pick as sort of when does the modern era of navalism begin. It depends a lot on your interpretive framework. Uh, I went with 1884 because that is when the famous article, series of articles appears in the Pall Mall Gazette, you know, the truth about the Admiralty by uh, W.T. Steed. And uh, that is sort of when these two uh, groups first bump into each other. And the question of why the Admiralty decided to go to W.T. Steed is essentially that he was already famous, you know, which is sort of, I, I don't know if I would phrase it cynically as such, but, you know, he was a well-known name. He was the guy. He was the big name in this so-called new journalism. You know, he had had his series of articles about London. He was becoming essentially the equivalent of an investigative reporter. And people in the Admiralty went to him. And people who were involved with the Navy on kind of a broader scale went to him. Uh, the first connections, and this is one area where the archival sources are a little thin and in some cases seem actually to have been gotten rid of. Uh, but some of the first connections were made between W.T. Steed and H.O. Arnold Forster, who was at the time just sort of a publishing defense expert. Of course, he would go on to become secretary to the Admiralty later on. Um, Reginald Brett, he would become Viscount Esher later on. He was involved in this. And pretty quickly on, like these initial connections were made at a very, very high level. You know, some of the first people that Steed talked to were... Astley Cooper Key, who was the first Lord of the Admiralty, and Frederick Beach of Seymour, who was, I believe, second Lord. Like, he gets interviews right at the top immediately. And when he goes in and talks to these guys, you know, what they tell him essentially is that we can't get any money for the Navy no matter what we do. You know, we try and we get responses like the one from Northbrook. We get responses that say the Navy's fine. You know, the Navy's got enough ships. We don't need more. Help us, help us, please. And it's it's very much a marriage of convenience. And so they get together and um, they spread their net a little wider and they end up getting in touch with other serving admirals who are interested in this project. Uh, Jeffrey Phipps Hornby was involved, Anthony Hoskins. These are still people very high in the chain of command. And then eventually they need folks who are closer to the ground, as it were. And that's when they start to bring in Jackie Fisher. And of course, that begins that long-term story. But initially... There's kind of this idea, admirals are frustrated, they can't get any money from the admiralty itself. People who are kind of in their orbit realize maybe this new journalism is the way to go, and those first connections are made. That's sort of how it kicks off. 
it's really interesting how you capture the transition because, as you point out, when you get into the 1890s, you still have uh, this uh, this strong sense, especially in the uh, under William Gladstone, the the sense of you know you know tight budgets, you know you 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 carefully monitor the public penny, and he ends up resigning in 1894. That you know this this legendary figure of Victorian politics is this you know this you know predominant member of the Liberal Party who who resigns because naval estimates are, you know, he, he refuses to countenance the inching up of naval estimates and, and how you still have that mentality there. And yet it, it, no sooner is he gone than you start to see these budgets going up dramatically. And, and it really points to the early successes they were scoring and how you were seeing this, not just in terms of increased budgets, but you're also seeing this in terms of the campaign. This is you, as you, you start off that chapter where you talk about the founding of the Navy League in, in 1894, which definitely adds to the public consciousness. I was wondering if you could explain uh, how that transition was affected and, and how they were using the, the, the broader navalism to uh, reinforce their point to what degree was, was, the, the the broader navalism maybe sometimes uh, getting a little underfoot for their for their interests. Uh, you broke up a little bit just at the very end of your question. How the broader navalism was pardon me? Uh, sometimes uh, uh, sort of uh, got a little underfoot. How how it sometimes interfered with their interests. Gotcha. Yeah. Um. You know, particularly when Gladstone leaves office for the last time. You know, there's sort of a lot of people will push this idea that, you know, he was just, you know, a very elderly guy, which he was at that point. He was just sort of exhausted by politics in general. You know, he was exhausted dealing with Ireland. But yeah, the officially, the precipitating event there was another push for bigger naval budgets. And, you know, he said, I will not countenance this. Off I go. Um, and yeah, by the 1890s, um, which again is, is when I talk about the Navy League and I didn't want to make the entire project about the Navy League. Um, there's been a lot of really good work done on the Navy League and the other sort of pressure leagues at the time. So I wanted to kind of focus part of a chapter on it. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of this idea of bringing it to a broader audience. And here, frankly, the Navy League suffers from the same problem that directed navalism suffers from. Not not quite to as large of a degree, but it's there, which is that these are people who don't really understand what the average guy in the street in London knows or wants to know about the Navy. They don't. They just straight up don't. They want to, and they think they can try and bring that news to everyday folks, but they don't really understand. You know, obviously, directed navalism is very, very much an elite phenomenon. Um, groups like the Navy League, they are less elite, but they are very much middle and upper middle class organizations. You know, they all have patrons who are big, fancy folks, things like that. And they have all these grandiose plans. Uh, one of the, you know, one of the great quotes from that mid 1890s period is, you know, we must get at the man in the omnibus. You know, we must find the guy going to work and grab him by the shoulders and shake him until he understands the Navy is important. Well, fine. How do you do that? You know, and, and they found that very, very difficult. And that's one of the, frankly, longer term developments I talk about when talking about the Navy League, which is that they did end up having a lot of success. But it was sort of through the field of education, particularly children's education, right? It was the Navy League, you know, they end up putting out the big maps of the British Empire, the pink maps with all the lines on them of all the British territory. You know, they will do things like sponsor essay contests at children's schools, and they'll give you biographies of Nelson if you can write the best essay on the Navy. And that what that does is eventually, by 
1910, 1915, does turn the Navy League into a really big organization, but it's not what its founders wanted. You know, in the 1890s, the people behind this initial flourishing, you know, they were folks who, like Julian Corbett, you know, people who were involved in a very intellectual view of the Navy, people who were involved in a much more cut and dry naval history aspect, you know, they were sort of trying to get people to learn about tactics at Trafalgar, and you could not make the man on the omnibus care about that. And that was- No matter how much shaking is entailed. (laughs) Yeah, no matter how much shaking there was. And that was something that the Navy League had a lot of trouble trying to come to grips with. And this will eventually lead to splinter organizations like the Imperial Maritime League later on that became very purposefully partisan and sort of took a third tack entirely. But although the Navy League ended up, again, as a very, very large organization, it did so by essentially appealing to everybody. And that was not in the direction that its founders intended, is how I will phrase that. Now, you have this also this uh, other factor that's emerging in the 1890s, which is the the, uh, emergence of naval figures who, for lack of a better phrase, understand public relations. And I'm thinking here about uh, John Fisher and Charles Beresford, because you, in your, in your first uh, couple chapters, you're talking about admirals who are aware of the need of it, but they're, they're going about it in, in a very insular fashion. These are men who are products of a Navy culture. They, they're not necessarily have engaged with the broader public. And, and so they're, they, they, you know, making those contacts with the journalists who know it, but they're, they're, they're doing so, it, it seems they're very stiff about it. But then you get to you know, Beresford, who is not just an admiral, but he's a he's a politician. He's elected to parliament, and you have John Fisher, who Jackie Fisher, who is, uh, you know, you know, uh, arguably has a knack for public relations and 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 a, and a knack for you know making those contacts. You start to see with these two men this this PR savviness, which really seems to give directed navalism a huge supercharge. Oh yes, that's. Extremely, extremely, extremely relevant. And again, Jackie Fisher initially had been brought into this project, I suppose I'll call it project, way back in the 1880s as just kind of, here's the young guy on the ground who knows most about this. And then he took this idea and he just ran with it. Although originally it was Beresford who was kind of the first, Beresford was more open about his dealings with the press early on. And then later on, of course, Jackie Fisher came to understand and work with it just as well. To take it aside for a second to talk about both of these sort of titans of the Edwardian Admiralty, you know, Jackie Fisher and Charles Bresford, I went into this project trying as hard as I could to not make it only about those two, and I hope that I have succeeded, but you just have to talk about them so, so, so much. I mean, they just became very much the, you know, the leaders of the two opposing sides here. You know, Bresford ends up as the head of the so-called syndicate of discontent. Jackie Fisher's got his little fish pond. You know, once you have individual names for all of your little groups, chances are high that you are separating into essentially armed camps. Uh, And so, well, I think I was able, I hope I was able to demonstrate that there were many, many more naval figures than just those two involved. They just kind of rise to the top. Now, it's, it's complex studying them today because the papers of theirs that have survived kind of have opposite issues and that there's, I think, 120 boxes of the Fisher Papers in Cambridge, and you know you can read them for years and years and years and years and never get through all of them. And there's very few Beresford Papers remaining, and that's uh, one of the things that I very much tried to do in this project was try and get at Beresford's, you know, other political and professional allies and try and read their side of the story and you know work that in. I went up to uh, 
McGill University to look at the papers of Carleon Belairs, who was one of his allies, and, and things like that. So while those two are, you know, very much the perfectors of the system, uh, I wanted to get across the idea that they are, of course, not the only people involved in the system. And I will say that Jackie Fisher does a better job of this than Charles Beresford because he does understand that naval publicity is a two-way street, you know, which is really what directed navalism is all about, right? He understands that journalists aren't going to come talk to you just to have a good time, you know, that because you're a good conversationalist. You need to actually provide them with information that will be useful to them in selling papers. And Fisher was very good at that. And Beresford struggled a little bit more with it. And I believe that's one reason why the Beresford side of the equation sort of turned into just kind of partisan political infighting first, although eventually they both did. I actually want to uh, elaborate upon that a little bit, but I, I, what I also was fascinating what was more, uh, you know, more educational for, for me uh, in terms of my perspective on this was reading about the period where they basically ran as much in harness in tandem as it was possible for those two personalities to do. And, and so you have this period in the late 1890s where it seems as though you're having, it, it's, it's as though the Admiralty in general is producing admirals who are more media savvy and who are, who are going to be able to push this directed navalism in the same direction before you start to have this conflict, which becomes, as you explained, not just a conflict of a clash of personalities, but also a clash of different visions as to where you're going to take the Navy and what you're going to do with all this money that you're trying to squeeze out of the government. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of reasons why the 1890s were sort of the halcyon days for this. And one, and on sort of a, a very broad level, is that the those kind of tactical, those kind of strategic decisions were pretty easy to make. You know, the British Navy, the, the Royal Navy is not really having, you know, a debate about should we build 500 torpedo boats like France is doing. The British Navy is all about battleships. That's a very easy point to grasp onto and shake in front of people on the omnibus. Battleships, battleships, battleships. You know, that is easier to understand. We need more money. Build those ships. OK, fine. So everybody can sort of pull together on that. And the other to take a broader scale, look at the whole project. You know, there's there's three groups here, right? There are. Professional members, of, you know, professional serving naval officers, there's politicians and there's the press. And this works best. Directed navalism is most effective when it is two against one. And in the 1890s, when admirals like Fisher and like Beresford are near the top, but not at the top of their profession, um, Jackie Fisher is, I believe, second sea lord at around this time, things like that. It means they still have sort of, I don't want to say an enemy, but a foil that they could point at and say, these are the people, you know, we need to knock over to get what we want. And they find it very easy to work together with the press sort of against the politicians. You know, as they rise through the ranks, but they're not at the top, they can still say to their compatriots, to their brothers in arms, let's all work together to get to the top. You know, it's, it's, it's a situation where it's easier to climb the mountain than to stand on top of the mountain. Because as you describe it, when, you, when they get to that top, there becomes this question of which one of them is going to be on the pinnacle. And you know, Jackie Fisher wins that battle in many respects because he becomes second sea lord, first sea lord. He uh, excuse me, becomes second naval lord, then first sea lord. He renames it. And 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 you, you start to see you know, as he's approaching that top and he starts to assume authority over Beresford, how Beresford resents that. And how it, it's fascinating how you describe it as the, the, the closer, uh, you know, 
Fisher himself gets to that pinnacle of power, the more annoyed he gets with having to effectively, uh, you know, handhold Beresford as Beresford's complaining about how nothing goes the way he wants it to. And, and, and what's fascinating is how that personality conflict then spills over into directed navalism and how the sides, you know, that, that you talk about polarize around them. And, and and not necessarily because uh, the the two are polarized are, are forcing these the the navalists to choose sides, but these navalists start to as you know people like Leo Max and, and J.L. Garvin they're they're basically saying well this person I, I seem to like him better for whatever reason or maybe his views are more closer to that navy that I think we should have and so therefore I'm going to start you know featuring him and denigrating the other admiral. Yeah, well, I certainly don't think Charles Beresford went about this in the correct manner, but you can understand. Why he was a little upset about this, you know, it was right when Jackie Fisher became first Sea Lord, you know, he had gotten a, a special promotion that would allow him to remain in that job extra years. It passed the point where Beresford would have been forced to retire. And, you know, Beresford sees this happen and essentially knows that his chance at the top of the mountain has just vanished. And then he sees things like fleets being moved around. You know, he gets very upset about that. Um, I think the big initial difference between how Fisher and Beresford approached directed navalism was that Beresford was quicker to bring in politics. And that's another one of the long-term things that I bring up all throughout the whole project is that politicization is one of the big things that essentially wrecks this project. You know, once you make it entirely partisan, it cannot survive as something for the Navy. You know, you cannot claim to be only for the Navy and only for one political party at this time period. You just can't do it. You need to have some hint of involving everybody in there. And this was, this was something that the Navy League managed to do. Now, it was a struggle a lot of times. You know, there were time periods when there's something like 125 members of parliament who were in the Navy League and like six of them were liberals, but it was enough. There was always enough. And that's something that Jackie Fisher himself also understood. And this goes back to it being a two-way street. You know, Jackie Fisher would talk to anybody. He talked to conservative journalists. He talked to liberal journalists. He talked to a smattering of labor journalists. You know, he talked to anybody who was willing to listen. Whereas Beresford not only went hard on the conservative party and nothing else, but also was running for parliament as a conservative as this was all happening. You know, he mixed these categories too early and too often. And that played a big role in sort of knocking this whole project apart. There's another dimension, though, that we should incorporate into this, and that is the changing needs of the Navy. Because this period that we're talking about, we're now talking about the Edwardian era, coincides with this naval uh, revolution. And it's one that basically scrambles a lot of the ex- uh, of the needs of the Navy. And you have different you know, naval figures uh, and different people, participants in directed navalism who had different visions for what the Navy should become. I was wondering if you could explain what's happening within the Navy and where uh, Beresford and and, and, and his uh, supporters and, and then uh, Fisher and the fish pond are, are, are lining up in terms of these changes that are taking place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, I didn't spend a gigantic amount of time in this in the project because sort of the broader tactical and strategic questions you know this is the idea of the bolt from blue school versus the blue funk school. you know this this idea that should the royal navy prepare for kind of a sneak attack a dash across the channel or should they be ready to send a giant fleet of their own um there are other historians who have done really 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 great work on this and in fact this is one of the areas of the historiography that is 
really, really strong right now. So I, I didn't want to spend um, huge amounts of time on it while writing. But essentially, Jackie Fisher gets a lot of credit, and I think rightfully so, for pushing things like the scheme and especially for pushing for the dreadnought, right? You know, he's going to come into office and he's going to change how training works. He's going to make it easier to get into the Navy. He's going to support the careers of engineering officers in particular. He's going to try and deal with some of the social stigma that they face. You know, he's uh, going to get rid of all these old early to mid Victorian warships that are just kind of cluttering up space. He's going to push for the dreadnought, you know, the all big gun warship. Um, later on, he will push for oil-fueled battleships, which again will become a major, major relevant technological factor. And he gets a lot of credit for doing this. And, you know, more more recent historians have made the very valid point that he doesn't come up with any of these ideas. He's just in charge and wants them to happen and sort of has the force of personality to get it done. But by that point, he is at the top of the heap. And that's when you start to see the politicization appear. And basically what ends up happening is that both Fisher and Beresford's camps, shall I say, they, they ossify, you know, and Jackie Fisher ends up in this position where he says, well, essentially, well, if it came through the Admiralty, it must be great, supported 100%. You know, I will brook no criticism. I will not listen to anything. This has to be the right idea. And you start getting into ideas, you know, like the battlecruiser and eventually into, you know, the World War I battlecruisers, which were just all over the place as technical ideas. And Beresford, for his part sort of takes the opposite tack. And he says, anything Jackie Fisher likes, I don't like. And he begins to sort of gather around him this wild variety of tactical thinkers and military thinkers who just don't like Jackie Fisher, essentially. That's kind of their one throughput. And that's not really the way to have an effective technical conversation. You know, he ends up gathering people around him like William White, who had been a naval constructor back in the 1880s and frankly didn't think that much of modern battleships at all. It had some what are quite honestly pretty backwards views on what battleships should be by 1905, 1910. And it, it doesn't matter. He can be Charles Beresford's pal, you know, because he doesn't like what Jackie Fisher's doing. You know, Beresford ends up supporting people who are much more on the Army's side of things because they want a focus on close shore defense. You know, Beresford's not an Army guy. He doesn't know anything about the Army, but these people are willing to support him. So now they can be friends. It's uh, while there are very high-level tactical and strategic discussions taking place within the Admiralty, uh, in terms of directed navalism, it's becoming just more of a slugfest in terms of a partisan fight. And that's, and again, one of the points I'm trying to make is that there's not a lot of deep tactical thinking going on at that level. You know, it's happening within the Admiralty, but it's not really happening as part of this feud. You know, probably the most notorious example of this is when Beresford manages to get the actual inquiry into Fisher's conduct started. And it turns out that Jackie Fisher really doesn't have any war plans or that he won't let people see the war plans. You know, he says, nobody will see them unless it's time. And uh, that's not really the way you would want to run a war, but that's the point we had reached. And of course, this is not just happening within the halls of the Admiralty, but it's spilling out into the press. And you describe how they were, how Fisher, it, it seems that sometimes he overvalued his ability to control the press. I, I, I was struck by this one uh, quote you have where he's basically saying, we need to have less of these, you know, you know, uh, the Admiralty, the, the, the fleet is unready and the uh, and the, we could be the sneak attack could happen. And we need more stories about all the advances we're doing. 
<laughs> which of course happens to coincide with the fact that he's the first sea lord and therefore is the person who you know gets the blame or the credit for for whatever developments take place and, and how so you're starting to have this you know appearing in in the press and it's having a spillover effect into politics when people are talking about what are we going to fund how much are we going to put into it and and how this is playing out not just in print but it's also playing out in the house of commons yeah and i think those were sort of two of the broader errors that Jackie Fisher made. You know, number one, the press doesn't have to listen to you. you know, it, is, <laughs> it is the press's job to sell papers. You know, and they found out. And, and um, I talk a lot about his relationship with J.L. Garvin in particular, and that was a relationship that ended up very badly damaged because Garvin ended up criticizing admiralty policies and got into what was essentially a big spat with Jackie Fisher. And, you know, the, he would find these journalists cut off from time to time. In fact, many of the journalists Fisher dealt with, James Thursfield is another great example, broke their relationships with him at various points because eventually even daring to criticize, he, he couldn't handle that. He, he was not a man who uh, dealt with criticism effectively. And I, I don't think he ever really conceptualized fully that it's still the press's job to sell papers. You know, and they're not going to sell papers talking about how prepared the Navy is, you know, which is, I think, one area where there is a lot of divergence between the sort of cultural idea of navalism and this idea of directed navalism, which is that you can sell cultural navalism in a time when everything's just kind of chugging along as it's supposed to, because you can have things like fleet reviews and you can have, you know, a dreadnought battleship pull up to a dock and all the people in the town will come visit it and you'll sell a bazillion little sailor suits and, you know, toy tin dreadnoughts and things, that's considered a success. But if you're selling newspapers, that's not going to do it. You need a crisis <laughs> to sell those papers. You know, this is the era when there's dozens of daily papers in London. And Jackie Fisher never really got that idea across, I don't think. You know, this idea that journalists very much like working with him because he's providing them sensitive information. But if that sensitive information becomes everything's great, that's not going to help them. And he sort of felt a little hurt by that, I think, that, you know, this uh, this relationship, this street may not be two ways all the time. And another related issue is that, once again, you know, Jackie Fisher had been so successful working with the press because they had this common foil. But by the time it's Jackie Fisher in charge, who's who's the bad guy in this situation, right? Okay, Jackie Fisher wants to work with the press to do what? You know, he can't, I, I suppose he could get articles written that were essentially give more money to the Navy, but he's also getting that done himself by dealing directly with the First Lord and dealing, you know, with members of Parliament. You know, there's, it, it becomes a much more complex task when rather than pushing for change, you are trying to defend your own change. And that was where he ran into a lot of trouble, I think. It is it it fascinating to see what was happening because you have, you know, on the one hand, it's like, Never before has the Navy, or, or not in, in decades, has, has the Navy been so important in terms of public debate. This is the height of the Anglo-German naval arms race. This is when, you know, this is an active discussion that's taking place in Parliament, in public, real concern about, you know, the, the fate of Britain, the fate of the British Empire. And yet, as you, you know, this is the point at which, as you explained, direct navalism falls apart. Is it entirely because of the personality conflict between Fisher and Beresford? Is it because of the fact that there 
there no longer is a single identifiable goal that they could achieve. It's no longer just about battleships. Or is it because it gets trapped up into the partisan politics between liberals and unionists? I think those are all very relevant factors. I would lean more towards the partisanship side. I, I think I called it um, partisanship and oh, politicization and factionalism. You know, which is a lot of uh, $10 words thrown in, in there to say, yes, once it becomes a political question, that is the poison that seeps through and, and wrecks everything else. You know, and the politics themselves radicalize as well during this time period. You know, we, uh, we've already talked about the Navy League, and I talked very briefly about that in, you know, in 1908, there's a splinter group off of the Navy League, the Imperial Maritime League. And these guys are just wildly radical in their political views. They are all extreme unionists. You know, they are calling for things like immediate inquiries into the Admiralty and we will be court-martialing people and we'll be throwing people in jail. And they have just absolutely bonkers ideas on, you know, things like, well, we must, you know, we must cut the budget for everything that isn't the Navy. You know, we must throw every liberal politician who continues to exist as a vital threat to the Navy's existence. And it just becomes so politicized so quickly and it just makes it very very difficult once again to all pull in the same direction you know this is even people who all theoretically want the same thing there's always going to be internal debates but in the 1890s the internal debate among directed navalists are sort of things along the lines of well okay do we want more coastal battleships or more seagoing battleships you know should we prioritize France, and by 1908, 1909, 1910, the internal debates are things like, should every admiral who votes liberal be court-martialed? And you've just <laughs> gone so radical so quickly that it really, it poisons the well. I was also struck by how when you get to the end of your book, you describe the, the, the post-Fisher admiralty. He is succeeded by uh, three admirals in, in a very short period of time, about four years. And yes. and, and none of them seem to have that 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 press appealing personality or that but or that publicity savviness that that Fisher did and, and I can't help but wonder if, if if the politicians were very conscious about that in terms of making those choices because they didn't want to see that you know the 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 big beasts battling it out and and uh, and kind of pushing these politicians in directions they didn't want to go well I think um First of all, I think everybody who was not Jackie Fisher and Charles Beresford were happy to see both of them kind of leave the stage. I mean, it really had just become, <laughs> frankly, a, a straight up. And then, of course, Fisher tries to come back and he's being secretly ferried around to meet with Winston Churchill on his yacht. And people are writing secretive. You know, uh, there's um, one of the admirals I quoted, uh, perhaps Walter Kerb. I don't remember. But one of the admirals I quoted in the book says, you know, essentially, I think they should just be both put in a sack and drowned like stray cats, which is a very <laughs> Edwardian way of thinking of that. And, you know, in a couple different manners, um, there's a lot behind the uh, how do I phrase this? The worsening of the relationship between the admiralty and essentially everyone else. And a, a big part of it is that a lot of admiral, admirals were just sick of this. They felt very badly burned by all this. You know, they felt that this whole huge feud that had lasted, you know, almost a decade before everybody sort of shuffled off the stage had just wrecked whatever they were trying to do. You know, and, and there's a couple interesting aspects here. One of them, and I apologize for this because I'm going to go back in time a little bit, which is that a lot of the very, very first directed navalists, the guys from the 1880s, who of course were long retired if they were still alive at this point, 
they ended up really disliking Jackie Fisher. And it was a question of tactics, essentially. They said, you know, we worked with the press secretly and sneakily and quietly, and here you are stirring up all the mud at the bottom. We don't want that. So people who came before got essentially sick of this whole mess. People who came after got sick of this whole mess. You know, and it that is something that manifests itself in a lot of different ways, but it's always present. You know, uh, people that ended up in charge after Winston Churchill, right? Winston Churchill, who became um, first order of the Admiralty, he tried very hard to also work with journalists. And the problem was he did not understand that it was a two-way street. And he would go to journalists and, you know, their papers are quoted in the book. And he would say things like, well, I'll give you information, but you're going to have to let me vet the articles or I'll give you information, (laughs) but you can't say this. And the journalists were furious about that. And some of them were straight up writing to Jackie Fisher about it and saying, you know, this is, this is not how things used to be. You know, the street was no longer two way. And the other point I want to bring up here briefly is that, you know, by the time both Fisher and Beresford are out of the picture, you're getting pretty close to that world war one era. And some of the big figures are, um, Jellicoe and B. And both of these were admirals who straight up hated dealing with the press. And I think those are both very much lessons learned from this directed navalist era. You know, Jellicoe sort of proved himself a disappointment to Fisher later on. You know, he was somebody, he had been in the fish pond. He was somebody whom Fisher had tried very hard to sort of nudge his career along, but he just never really wanted to talk to the press. And I think a lot of that has to do with what he saw happening with press dealings back in that Edwardian era. And of course, once World War I actually starts, Jellicoe's, you know, kicks all the journalists off. Journalists are not allowed anywhere. And this sort of reaches its pinnacle, you know, with the news of the Battle of Jutland, when they get German reports before they get British reports. And that's sort of the absolute death knell for this system. But the other side of the coin is Beatty, who was a guy who absolutely loved publicity, but hated the press. You know, he liked having sort of fawning articles written about him, but he didn't really like playing that game. And if you read his papers, it's because of Jackie Fisher. You know, he hated Jackie Fisher. He found Jackie Fisher to be sort of very much disgraceful to this cultural idea of what the Navy should be. You know, naval personnel should remain aloof from politics and aloof from the press. And, you know, he's writing his wife about how sickened he was by this idea that Fisher would come back. And of course, when he did come back, he was very upset about it. You know, two people who were supposed to carry this next generation on, they both were sick of it for two completely different reasons. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, um, long-term and short-term, because of course you always want to have projects in mind. Uh, The next thing I would would like to look at as sort of a book-length project is to talk about World War I, uh, obviously a topic that's been done a lot, but I want to talk about sort of the World War I officer class and kind of perception versus reality. You know, I find it um, very, very intriguing, this idea that, you know, obviously the uh, Royal Navy during World War I does everything that it is asked to do. And yet a lot of commanders, particularly in the admiralty level, are very disappointed by how the war turns out. You know, they get Jutland and that's about it. And I want to sort of look into that perception versus reality gap and talk a lot about perhaps this idea of what it means to be, you know, a member of the Royal Navy and perhaps go back and tie in ideas of Nelson from the past, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Short term, I think it's a really important idea to get further in depth into this concept that there's a lot of different types of navalism. 
Uh, obviously, mine is all about directed navalism. Um, I sort of set the book off in direct contrast to uh, what I called in the book cultural navalism, which has been a lot of people have, have been working on this recently. I'm sort of an idea from Jan Ruger originally, which is an absolutely great book. This idea, you know, that is stuff like what the Navy League is pushing. You know, this is when all your kids will wear sailor suits and things like that. And those are different types of navalism and they have different goals and they are achieved in different manners. You know, there is straight up political navalism. You know, how can I get elected by declaring that I support the Navy no matter what? You know, there's technical navalism. What sort of ship should I build? There's a lot, you know, there's navalism in the Dominions. And I would like to get something done on a smaller scale, you know, on sort of exploring in more depth what those different types of navalism are and why they exist. So if that's relevant to you, please look me up on Angela State University's website and send me an email. I'll be waiting. <laughs> well, I hope you get a lot of good feedback on that. And I look forward to reading your materials uh, that you produce when you're done. Well, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Bradley Cesario, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. And we have a wonderful day. You as well. 